So if you would, out of adoration for God's word, stand with me as we read this passage together. I'm going to read uh, Hebrews 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, and verse 10. So hear now God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Lord, this is indeed your word, and we ask that you would give us comfort that you would instruct us of this amazing gift that you have given to us by providing for us a high priest. This is something that is often a foreign concept for us, but help us to delight ourselves in it and to have the confidence that you have given us in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we read through the pages of Scripture and we hear God speak about himself, we get a a sense that God is wholly other from us. Uh, It's true that he has made us in his image, and yet there is something significantly, drastically different between God and his people. Uh, We see his majesty and his splendor, his power and his might, which is unmatched. We see his transcendence, and we know of his omniscience, that he knows all things, his omnipotence, his all-powerful, and his omnipresence, that he is everywhere. And when we consider who God is, we see that he is holy and marvelous and wonderful beyond our understanding and truly and utterly worthy of our praise. And when we consider who God is, it's natural and right for us to be humbled by that and to sense our smallness. One of the psalmists says, I am I'm a worm and not a man in the midst of his 
humility recognizes these things and we compare ourselves against the transcendence of this holy God and we see our mortal selves, our impure selves, and we sense that difference. And we know that because of these, this huge distinction that for us to know anything about God, God would have to stoop down. He would have to pursue after us. He would have to initiate contact with us, which scripture is very clear. And our confession states that God has done just that. He has entered into a covenant with us. He's revealed himself to us in his word, as we discussed last week. And yet, doesn't it feel sometimes like there's this detachment that we have? God is so, so different that does he, does he truly take notice of us? Or does he truly, truly take notice of me? You might wonder. And does he, does he, to that point, does he understand? Or is he so different that he, do, he, he doesn't understand me and what he's asking of me in the midst of my life circumstances? Or does he even care? Or is he this king that just rules with his law with no sympathy or compassion for us? But beloved, when we look at scripture clearly, and we, particularly this passage, the answer to those questions, does God care, does God know, does God understand, is yes and amen in the person, and we know this in the person of Jesus Christ, specifically in his priestly work, his work as our high priest. This sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God chose to send his son to be clothed with human weakness, like you and me, so that he would understand our experience so that he could represent us before the throne of grace and so that he could help us on our journey. As we've been talking about, this, this book of Hebrews is focused on our perseverance in the midst of trials, this, this wilderness, wanderings. And when we get to this passage, what we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only our conqueror, our forerunner, our pioneer who has gone into the heavens, but he's also our high priest in glory who offers help, who represents us in God's presence. And that's what we need to hear today is that Jesus Christ is our high priest who understands you perfectly. And he's helping us, offering real help on the way to glory. So this, this concept of a high priest, we see this in the Old Testament. And we mentioned this before a, a few weeks ago, but the the high priest was the one who gave mankind access to the Lord. This was somebody that God set apart to be the representative for God's people. He would go into the Holy of Holies, which was where God said, I will meet with you in this place. And the 
high priest had to be purified. He had to offer sacrifices on behalf of himself, as our text says, but then also on behalf of the people. And when he came into God's presence, he had access. He could speak to the Lord. He could hear the Lord speak to him. So when we hear about the high priest, what we're focused on is our access to the Almighty God, a the bridge, the, the, the means of truly communing with him. And in this passage, uh, as it speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest, it says three kind of very key things about his role. That he was chosen, that he was perfect, but then he was sympathetic. Chosen, perfect, and sympathetic. So first he was uh, chosen. In um, verse 5, Uh, The author makes clear that every high priest was chosen from among men. So he was chosen and appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Um, And verse 4 says, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So this was not an election This was not a volunteer activity. God himself was choosing who would represent God's people. And that's even true for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And why that's important is because God is handpicking the man who will be into, in his presence. Handpicking the man that will represent you in his presence. And this is about access. God will only grant those into his holiness, his holy presence that he accepts. And this is a man who will pray for you, pray for his people. And God has called and appointed this man, his son, Jesus Christ, to be this high priest. And so he is perfect. He is the perfect representative. And that's what we see next is that he's, he's not just perfect, but he's also perfected. And we saw this language back in chapter 2, and we see it again here in chapter 5. In verse 9, he says, and being made perfect, being made perfect, and we said this before, but it bears repeating. This is important because he's repeating himself. It's not that the Son of God was somehow imperfect. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the Son of God had to be perfected in his role as a high priest. He had to become qualified to become a high priest. There was something that had to take place in order for him to serve in this capacity as our mediator. And there were a couple things. Uh, We saw back in verse 5 that he had to be a a man. It says, for every high priest, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on, on behalf of men in relation to God. This is why the Son of God, one of the reasons why the Son of God became a man was because to be a high priest, only men, only humans are 
high priest, chosen from among the people to represent the people. So he had to be made a person in order to represent us. But the second was he had to endure what we endure. It says that uh, he had to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. It says in verse 15 of chapter 4, it says that he uh, suffered, he learned obedience by what he suffered. It was true suffering because it says he uh, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He truly suffered. And he suffered because he was being perfected. He was learning. He was experiencing our experience, your experience, so that he could represent you. And we know that he was accepted because it says that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. That language of passing through is reminiscent of the language of a high priest who would pass through the curtain into God's presence. But in the Old Testament, that was merely a picture of the reality. The reality is the Lord Jesus Christ passing into the, through the heavens into God's presence where he is now a priest forever representing us. So he was perfect, he was perfected, and he is now perfectly representing you. And one of the results of that perfecting process is that he is sympathetic, that he understands you completely. Um, there's this double negative in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. In other words, we do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he was in every respect tempted, tested, tried, as we are, yet without sin. It says um, that every high priest uh, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. And that is one of the mysterious and majestic realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, beloved, is that the all-powerful Son of God took on the weakness of human flesh so that he could sympathize, so he could understand the temptations that you and I go under, uh, the, the testings, the failings, the, the futilities. He experienced all of those on our behalf. And beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ was perfected through this testing and try, trying and temptation. And he was found faithful. And why that's really good news is because the Lord Jesus Christ works to help us as we are being perfected through suffering. There is a reality that our God is perfecting us through this wilderness wandering, through this tr source of trial and testing that we live in. We are perfected in it as we are tested, as our faith is tested, 
as we are sanctified, that means being made holy, being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our faith is being validated as God's work is tested through the experiences that we endure. But we cannot do that by ourselves. We, we cannot do it by ourselves. We can't, we can't make ourselves holy by ourselves because we are, apart from the work of our God, we are sinful in every part of our being. We need to be purified. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that by offering himself as a sacrifice to purify us. But it's, it's not just that. It, once purified, we need to be able to stand firm to the end, which means we need the strength to be able to resist temptation, to set aside those sins which so easily entangle us. But we have a Savior that has experienced exactly what we experience and understands those temptations and has been faithful and now sits at the right hand of God the Father and promises to help. He promises to help. And beloved, that, this, is, this is very good news. This is, this is great news because it's not, well, and, it, and it's much more than I mean, prayer on behalf of us in, in God's presence would be marvelous in and of itself, but it's even, even greater than that because our Savior has given us his spirit. So the spirit that was in the Lord Jesus Christ as he was holy and pure and blameless and withstood each and every temptation and testing has been poured out into you and me to give us that strength, to release us from the bonds of our sin so that we can persevere unto the end, so that we can stand up under our temptation. And the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit knows your fears and your fights and your fatigues as you endure this life. And he is there to help. He is there to help. So to persevere in this there's two commands that the text gives us, two more of these let us commands that are commands for us as the people of God as we are persevering. The first, and they're both there in chapter 4. The first one is in verse 14. It says, since we have a great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. And I think if we were going to define what it means for us to persevere unto glory, this is what it means, that we would hold fast our confession. Now, when we say, when he says confession, that's not, he's not talking about like a doc, specific doctrinal statement like our Westminster confession or anything like that. I think what he's just talking about is our confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the, the, the reality that the confession of the truth that is in Jesus Christ is opposed to all 
that the world has to offer. It is a confession that we were created to glorify and enjoy God himself. And yet we are separated from him due to our own rebellion. And yet God has extended his grace by sending his son that if we hope and trust in his finished work and walk in his ways, that we will be saved. That we will be saved. And that confession brings opposition. It promises opposition because the world is opposed to all of that. And that is indeed, I think, the heart of the, the, the difficulty of perseverance. Why we must persevere, why life is not easy, because we are holding fast to a confession, a reality, a truth that everything that we experience is opposed to. Our own flesh is opposed to it. The world, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors are opposed to it. And so we can expect opposition. And so the command to us is, let us hold fast our confession because it is by holding fast to this confession that we are able to receive that which is promised. If we shrink back, if we fall away from this confession, then like the Israelites, we would fall in the wilderness and not be able to see our glorious home. And because we face that opposition, beloved, what, you, what we need to ask ourselves is, where do you compromise? Where do you compromise the, the confession so that you can avoid the opposition? Because that's what our hearts do. We, we don't want the opposition. We want things to go well now. And we're promised opposition if we hold fast to this. Lean into those areas where your, your life reflects what this world has to offer in opposition to what God calls us to do in his word because it is through holding fast to the confession of Jesus Christ that we reach this end. We must hold fast. And when we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, he held fast and he was opposed in the most egregious and violent way. He was opposed to the cross. He was innocent. He proclaimed the truth. And he paid the price. But he did that to experience what we will experience on our path to glory, but to do it even better and for our glory so that our hope would be in his faithfulness to the end. We must hold fast. He was rewarded for his faithfulness. We will be rewarded for our faithfulness. So that's one command. We must hold fast to our confession. But the second command, that second let us command is how we hold fast to that confession. It's there in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. And beloved, you can't miss how wonderful this command is. 
how wonderful this command is because this language of drawing near is the language of the high priest. Only the high priest could draw near to our God. In Exodus chapter 25, it's one of those passages that we tend to fly through because God is giving prescriptions for the tabernacle. And there's the prescriptions for the Ark of the Covenant. And God says, build a mercy seat and put that in the Holy of Holies. And he says, from that mercy seat, I will meet with you. I will speak to you. That is where I will be. And this is the same throne of grace, beloved, that we are now told to draw near with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what that means, brothers and sisters, is that the spirit of our great high priest who dwells in us has fit us to be priests to come into his presence with full confidence to find mercy and to find grace in help in time of need. Which is why we need to understand what an amazing blessing it is that we are able to pray to our God directly. Um, There was a one of my professors in seminary, uh, one of my favorite things about his class was just hearing that man pray uh, because there was a, you, you, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but you could just tell that he had a relationship, that he knew this God to whom he was praying. It was powerful as he prayed. I learned Godliness through his prayers. And I've heard people say, man, I just want to pray like that man. But beloved, what you need to understand is that there are no first class and second class prayers. Regardless of how you feel about your prayer life, your God delights in your prayers just as much as an aged seminary professor who prays hours each day. The Lord calls you to approach with confidence and joy into the presence of your God. He wants to hear you. He commands you to pray to him, that he would give you help. James says that Elijah was a man just like us, just like you, and God heard his prayers in a mighty way. God hears your prayers. He delights in your prayers. Every child of God is welcomed when they come in faith in the Son of God. And the Father loves to hear our prayers. And he says that we would come that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if we just survey what Scripture says about prayer, and what God, how God teaches us to pray. It is help for perseverance in the midst of our lives. Scripture says, um, 
that Paul teaches in Ephesians that we would pray for faith, for the knowledge of God's will, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would know the love of Christ. These are things to pray for. That's, that's the, the foundation of our union with Christ. Uh, we're taught to pray for our growth in grace. Paul teaches us to, that we would pray to stand mature in Christ, that we would live lives worthy of the calling that we've received in Jesus Christ. We're, we're called to pray for repentance. 1 John 5 says, if you see a brother committing sin, pray for him. God will give him life. And James chapter 5 says, if we confess our sins to one another, that we may be healed. Pray for one another. Um, but it's not just the spiritual aspect of our hearts, but even the, the physical trials of our life. James says that if anyone's suffering, let him pray. It's suffering that causes us to lose our grip on our confession. He's willing to help. Third John 2 says, uh, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. We can't over-spiritualize our prayers. Our God wants to hear all of it. We fear for what happens to our bodies. It causes us to lose our grip. He's willing to help. Um, we need wisdom for how we live. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives graciously to all without finding fault. And we need peace in the midst of the anxiety of our circumstances. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And beloved, we have a high priest in God's presence, who is eager and willing to help, to give grace and mercy in times of need. Are we neglecting that gift? And there's, as we think about how Jesus helps, I think there's three key ways. I think he, he helps us directly himself. We'll hear about this again in chapter 7, but your high priest is praying for you. Jesus Christ is praying for you. He's praying, he's known all the things that you've endured, all your trials and temptations and struggles in the past and what you will face in the future. And he is praying that you will make it to his glorious presence. But also, he sympathizes. He understands And it's coming from a heart of a sympathetic Savior as he prays for you. So there's one that cares. But he also helps us by his spirit. The Apostle Paul says, we often don't know what to pray for. But the spirit, that's Christ's spirit, intercedes with our spirit. With groanings sometimes too difficult to understand. It's as if God is conditioning our, our prayers. So that as they raise to the throne of grace... God would hear and respond. But his spirit is also the one that gives us that strength, that will 
to walk, to endure, the strength to put aside those sins, to pursue godliness. It's the Spirit of Christ that gives us victory over our sins. But he also helps us by his body. And by that, I mean the church, the body of Christ. Christ helps us through his body. I mean, the command is, let us then with confidence draw near. It is for us to draw near with confidence. So many of those commands or exhortations about prayer are pray for your brother who is in sin. Pray for, uh, have the elders come and pray for you when you are sick. It is one of us, some of us, praying for each other. We have to be eager to pray for one another. God has fit us to be priests. He is hearing our prayers, and he wants us to care for one another in the body because we, we will reach glory together. We need to be eager to hold one another up together. So let me ask you, what does your brother or sister or brothers and sisters in the body, what do they need? How, how can we help them in their time of need? It is an act of love to lift our eyes off of ourselves and to start looking to our brothers and sisters to say, what needs are there? What spiritual needs? What physical needs? What, where do they need to grow? How can I be praying for them that they would stand firm in the midst of their lives? What trials are they faced with? What unique temptations will they address? How can I encourage them? Or how can I help them physically, materially, in this time of need? We ought to see this as an exhortation to hold one another up in prayer and to do so with confidence as a means of faithfulness. But for some of us, sometimes we get so uh, stuck in our suffering, in our struggles, or our sinfulness, that it's just enough <laughs> to be able to even cry out to the Lord, Lord, save me, help me. And if that's the case, beloved, I would ask you to reach out, to share your struggles and your pains where you need help. Reach out to your brothers and sisters and ask them to pray for you. This is something that we do together, that we grow together, we hold one another together. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, knows what you are going through, and he desires to help you, and he has given you brothers and sisters to walk along with you in the midst of this. Let his body care for you in the midst of this. And to that point, beloved, in God's grace, he has put us in a community where we struggle through the same struggles. There is no temptation that overtakes you that is not common to man. So that means that you have brothers and sisters who struggle with the same things that you do. Your marriage struggles, your struggles with personal purity, your struggles with how you parent, your struggles in the workplace, we all face them together. 
Let's pray for one another and hold one another up in that. Our God helps us persevere through these things. So you need to ask yourself, is the Lord Jesus Christ your high priest? Are you letting him represent you? And are you being a willing participant as he works through you to minister to your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? In our last house, uh, I often would work in one of the bedrooms, and there was a, just a normal door. You couldn't see through it. And uh, my kids knew that when Dad had the door shut that he wasn't to be bothered unless it was something uh, important. And uh, on more than one occasion, as I was sitting there working or studying or whatnot, I would hear footsteps come up to the door kind of slowly, and then I'd hear a quiet or a kind of a timid knock on the door because they didn't, want to, they didn't want to offend me. They didn't want to upset me. They didn't want to interrupt me. They didn't want to be a, a problem to me. And beloved, so often that is how we proceed to the throne of grace. But our God has said, let us draw near with confidence. Your, your God wants you to come to his throne of grace. He, he, has, he is not bothered by your prayers. He is not bothered by you. You are not an irritant to him. He loves you and adores you. And he wants you in his presence. By fear or uh, frustration, we shrink back. But we must draw near with confidence to speak to our God, to listen to him. Drawing near is a command of fellowship. It is a command of intimacy. And is a, demand, a command that gives us security. And this is what our God has given to us in his son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. He has fit us for his presence. Our God is helping you and helping me. So let us draw near that we might find help in time of need and that we might persevere to the end. Let's pray together. Oh, our God, thank you that you love us that much to send your son to give us access into your presence. Father, may we never forget what love you have for us, how much you delight in us. And may we be encouraged and have confidence to come into your presence that we might find help for we truly need it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.